Tonight I'd like to speak about the meaning and the significance of the Buddha in our lives and in our times. What meaning does the Buddha have for us? We can understand the Buddha in several different levels. We can understand the Buddha as an historical person who was born at a certain time, had a certain particular kind of background, strove for, for certain things, awakened, taught for many years, and died. So there's the historical, historical personage. Second level of understanding the Buddha is as an archetype, a basic archetype of humanity. In this sense, the Buddha is an expression of Buddha nature, or an expression of the awakened mind. From this archetypal level of understanding, we can appreciate the Buddha's life not merely as a particular person's strivings or a particular person's realization, but as the unfolding of an extremely sacred mythological journey. Mythological, in this sense, does not mean unreal. Myth has a tremendous power for us in our lives. And the power of myth is that it universalizes the particular. So we can see the Buddha as a historical person. We can see him as an archetype of humanity, representing this mythological journey of awakening. We also can understand the Buddha as being the ultimate elements or constituents of reality. <clears throat> one time in the assemblage of monks, there was one monk who would sit right up front and just face the Buddha and stare at him with great adoration and love of this physical form. And this went on for months, and finally the Buddha reprimanded him. He said, you you can look upon this body for a hundred years and you won't see the Buddha. Those who understand the Dhamma, those who see the Dhamma, see the Buddha. So really to awaken to this understanding of Buddha, we have to understand the Dhamma of ourselves. Dhamma meaning all of the elements of the mind, all of the elements of the body. When we understand the Buddha on all of these levels, as a historical person, as a universal archetype, as the ultimate constituents, the ultimate elements of reality, then we can begin to see some universal timeless principles in his life story. We see his life not simply as a kind of fable of history, or not simply as an abstract story of somebody who lived 2,500 years ago. We can understand his life as that which reveals the universal in all of our lives. 
This way of understanding allows us to see our own experience, our own life journey, our life unfolding in a much larger and more profound context. We connect the Buddha's journey with our own journey. If you think of the people who have been the great explorers you know, in history, whether it's the explorers of nature, explorers of the planet, explorers of the mind, explorers in science, explorers in the arts, the people who are just at the edge of the known, who are opening to the unknown. Then we can get a sense of the tremendous mystery of that. When the mind is willing to approach just the boundary of everything that is known, and to make that leap, to make that leap of intuition to something which is unknown, we can appreciate the mystery, we can appreciate the courage. But how many times, as we reflect about these people, of whom there have been many you know, in human history, how many times do we think of the difficulties and the problems and the annoyances that they underwent in this journey? Now, sometimes I think of people exploring this country and the adventure of it all seems so fantastic, you know, before McDonald's, <laughs> you know, of just kind of charting through, the, through this amazing wilderness. But we don't often think of the mosquitoes and the rain, you know, and the dysentery and the irritations and all the mundane annoyances in this kind of journey. It's all part of the discovery. And in the same way, the countless irritations, the countless annoyances and problems that we face in our own practice, all the times of boredom and of restlessness and of pain and of doubt and of wondering what we're doing here and you know, why we came, <laughs> all of these are really a part they're, they're an inextricable part of this fantastic journey of discovery. It's the journey of discovery of who we are. Joseph Campbell, who was you know, this wonderful scholar of the world's myths, he describes this archetypal journey of the spiritual hero or heroine. And he uses the Buddha's life as an example of this great mythological journey. He interweaves the particular elements of the historical person with the universal principles which they reveal to us. And when we can see how the Buddha's journey of discovery relates to our own journey of discovery, it gives us tremendous energy and inspiration. It puts our work into this very profound context. The first stage in this sacred journey 
is called the call to destiny or the call to awakening. It happens when there's something in our lives which wakes us up. There's something in our lives which starts to make us question what it is all about. This call to destiny or call to awakening arises in us when we're no longer satisfied with the conventional levels of understanding. We're no longer, we're no longer satisfied with the conventions of society. Most of us live in the world of a particular verb. We live in the world of the verb to have. We have possessions. We have relationships. We have a mind. We have a body. And our language, the way we communicate, supports this way of seeing, supports this sense of having. Eric Fromm, a well-known psychologist, he capsulized this in a very concise phrase, I am what I have. You know, and that's how we live, that's how we understand things very often. There's a basic problem with this, and that is there is nothing which we have which we won't lose. And so there's always an underlying sense of some unease or some discomfort or some anxiety or some sense of incompleteness because we can feel that. Even as we're living in this world of the verb to have, we know that it is not ultimately fulfilling. In the life of the Buddha, before his awakening, when he was called a bodhisattva, that is, a being working towards full enlightenment, he very much was in this world of having. He was born as a prince. You know, and he had all kinds of sense pleasures surrounding him. He had a loving family. And he had beautiful, intimate relationship with his wife. He had developed all kinds of worldly skills and worldly knowledge. And his father, who was the king, in some way embodied this cultural value of having when it was predicted that the Bodhisattva would go off and renounce it all and become the Buddha, his father was not pleased. His father wanted to keep him in that realm of to have, to keep him in the palace, to, to keep him in the kingship. For the Bodhisattva, the call to destiny, the call to awakening, happened when he came face to face with three basic aspects of life, which really had been kept from him. 
So when he came face to face with the fact of disease, the fact that this body becomes diseased, that the body becomes old, and that the body dies. Now, and we all know this. We know it intellectually, and we may have had more or less contact with this. But have we internalized this experience, the truth of disease and old age and death, in ourselves? Do we actually know it, that this is where we're going? This is the process, and it's not an accident, and it's not a mistake, and there's nothing wrong with this happening. It is the nature of this mind and body. And so for the bodhisattva, when he internalized this understanding, when he saw it so clearly, he began to question, why should I, who am subject to <coughs> decay and death, spend my life seeking that which is subject to decay and death? And I think it's a very profound reflection. Because it makes us examine for ourselves what are we doing with our lives? What are we seeking? Where are we going? What is our highest value? Is our highest value that which is also subject to decay and death? When the Bodhisattva questioned this, when he saw this, he questioned the whole idea of this world of having because he saw the basic incompleteness of it. And as he questioned the value of having more or having different things also subject to decay and death, he glimpsed another possibility. And he glimpsed the possibility of the world of being rather than the world of having. In the world of being, we come home. When we stop the urge to have, we come to rest in the world of being. And as the Bodhisattva glimpsed this, glimpsed this possibility, which was his call to awakening, was his call to destiny, it awakened in him the energy of countless lifetimes of effort and practice. And his mind be began questioning some of the fundamental issues that face us. Now, what is the nature of life? What actually is it? And what is death? Each one of us has had a call to awakening. Each one of us has had this call to destiny. It's what brings us here. There's been something in each one of our lives which has made us question, which has seemed important enough to us to actually look and investigate, to go beneath the surface of things. Reflecting on this, each one for ourselves, 
reflecting on what it was that awakened this call, connects us with our own initial and original inspiration. And it's a tremendous empowerment for us in our practice. It reconnects us with our own source of power. This is the first stage on the, on the great journey of awakening. It's the call to destiny. The second stage that's described is called the great renunciation. In order to awaken ourselves to the hidden possibilities of things, we have to be willing to renounce our attachment to conventional beliefs. Renounce our attachment to the appearances so that we can go beneath them. One of the things that characterizes so many of the great openings, the great discoveries in this world has been somebody's understanding, somebody's glimpse that things are not what they seem to be that there is a different way of understanding. Now, for how many years did people believe that the sun went around the earth? Because it appears that way. That's what our conventional understanding says. But somebody observed something more carefully and came to a deeper understanding. There are so many conventional beliefs we have about ourselves which are reinforced by, by society and by cultural values. The great renunciation means a willingness to suspend those beliefs so that we can look more deeply. It's a renunciation of this value of having and coming to a place of valuing the quality of being. How do we do this? How do we actually manifest this stage of the great renunciation? It happens when we develop the power of a silent awareness. When we're not continually reaching out for the next object, for the next possession, for the next person, for the next thing, in order to have it. We can see it very clearly in the meditation practice. The difference between our perception of having a pain. I have a pain in my knee. Already, just the way we think of it, we create this world of having. When we go from that to an awareness, to a very silent awareness of the pain as this field of changing sensations, there's no having in that. There's simply being those sensations, being the breath, being a thought. We can get a glimpse of how strongly this 
having mode is conditioned in our minds and in our lives through an attitude in the mind that can be easily noticed in meditation practice. I call it the in order to mind. You know, we're watching something in order for something to happen. Watching an in-breath in order for the out-breath. You know, watching a pain in order for it to go away. That in order to carries with it this sense of having. We're no longer at rest. We're no longer at home simply in this world of being, in a sensation, a thought, a feeling, an emotion, a breath. By letting go of this energy of having, an attitude of having, the construct that we create in our mind about it, we open ourselves to explore and investigate realms of much deeper possibilities, much deeper experience. In coming on retreat, we have all developed to some extent this second stage of the journey, this great renunciation. Already, just by coming together and practicing in this way, we've actually renounced quite a, quite a lot relative to worldly values and worldly standards. For the Bodhisattva, in his life and in his journey, he left his palace, he left his home, he left his family. He manifests the renunciation in such a deep and complete way. He left all the interests of the world. And he spent six years engaged in various practices. He studied with different teachers. He mastered all the levels of samadhi, of concentration practice, of absorption and experienced all the bliss of those levels of concentration. And he wasn't satisfied. It was not enough. It was not freedom. And he spent years practicing the ascetic disciplines of that time, which were tremendously extreme and severe, because there was the belief in India at that time that somehow if you mortified the body, if you tortured the body, you would subdue the ego. You would get rid of the ego. There's one very mm, beautiful and inspiring Buddha image, which is uh, in many of the Asian countries. It's actually of the Bodhisattva doing these ascetic practices. And it's this very uh, dignified image but it's, it shows, the name of the image is called the Emaciated Bodhisattva, because you see it, it's carved in such a way that all the ribs are standing out and you can see the effect. It's said that he reduced his diet to a grain of rice every other day. Whether this is literal or metaphorical, I don't know. But he brought it to an extreme. He brought that ascetic discipline to an extreme it didn't work. He saw that it did not bring the freedom that he wanted. And so he gave that up. 
and he took some nourishment. And he prepared himself for the third great event in this mythological sacred journey. There's the call to destiny, the great renunciation. The third event is called the great struggle. And this is the struggle that the Bodhisattva had with Mara, the embodiment of delusion and desire, the struggle with Mara under the Bodhi tree. Joseph Campbell describes this in a, in a mythopoetic way. And the imagery is wonderful, if you, can, if you can hear the imagery of it. The Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree and straightway was approached by Kamamara, the god of love and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. Please imagine this. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before, 12 to the right, 12 to the left, and to the rear as far as the confines of the world. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree, and the god then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder, and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness the antagonist hurled against the Savior. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers by the power of Gotama's ten perfections. Mara then deployed desire and pining and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting in the immovable spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. And she did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of the antagonist fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. The great struggle. <laughs> So if you think you have some problems, <laughs> every time we sit, we are actually sitting under the Bodhi tree. This is the place of our journey. This is where we are. We are sitting under the Bodhi tree, and the god of Kamamara, of attachment and death, comes to confront us in all the myriad forms. When we understand 
the meaning of what is happening as we sit and as we face these forces, which are universal forces. These are the forces of the mind. We can have a much more profound appreciation for our own heroic efforts, for our own courageous efforts. It's the same effort that the Bodhisattva made under the Bodhi tree. This is what we're doing when we're practicing. And so we should not trivialize our undertaking. What we're doing is this investigation in the most direct and intimate and immediate way of the nature of the mind. And that entails the coming face to face with all the forces of the mind. And the imagery and metaphor that Joseph Campbell used is not an underestimation of the powers of the mind. So it's this tremendously important thing that happens every time we sit, every time we are looking, every time we're opening ourselves to what is happening. The fourth stage of this great journey is the call to destiny, the great renunciation, the great struggle under the Bodhi tree. And the fourth stage of this journey is the great awakening. For the Bodhisattva, this happened that night under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya. And in the three watches of the night, his mind was illuminated in three different ways. In the first watch of the night, his mind opened to his own succession of past lives. He was able to see the endless progression of birth, life, and death, and birth, and life, and death, countless times, innumerable times. So he opened to the endlessness of this process and the essential insubstantiality of it all. Just imagine if we had that ability to open to the endless number of past lives, of being born and dying and being born and dying in so many different circumstances. it would create some dispassion from the particular circumstances of this particular life. In the second watch of the night, his mind opened to understanding the law of karma and how beings are reborn according to their actions. And this awakened in the Bodhisattva the deepest, the deepest feeling of compassion. Because it became clear that beings who were seeking for happiness and wanting happiness and striving for happiness out of ignorance, out of not knowing the conditions and the causes for happiness, would be doing those very actions which led them to suffering. 
And so through seeing the karmic destiny of all beings, it awakened in the bodhisattva this, this great compassion. And in the third night, in the third watch of the night, his mind opened to and penetrated the most profound aspects of the teachings. That is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination. Understanding how it is that the mind creates suffering. How does that happen? What is the sequence? What is the process? And what is the process of freeing the mind from suffering? It's said that just at daybreak, as the morning star shone in the sky, reflecting on these Four Noble Truths and dependent origination, the Buddha's mind and heart became fully realized, fully awakened. And the first thoughts that came to him after his enlightenment, as he later said, I traveled through the rounds of countless births, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Sorrowful is birth again and again. O house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build no house again. Your rafters, that is the defilements of mind, have been broken. Your ridgepole, ignorance of mind, shattered. Achieved is the end of craving. Mind has attained to unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. That's a powerful statement to have purified the mind of that elemental force which drives us through these countless births. He spent the next two months in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, reflecting on various things, and walking slowly to a little place outside of what is now Benares, a place called Sarnath. And in Sarnath there was a deer park. The five ascetics with whom he had practiced those ascetic disciplines were living in that deer park in Sarnath. And the, the Buddha thought, I'll go to them, they are ready, they're ripe to hear the teachings. I'll go to them and teach. And so in Sarnath, two months after his enlightenment, he gave the first discourse, which is called setting the wheel of the Dhamma in motion, the wheel of the law in motion. And it's, for me, an inspiring thought. I think of the Buddha turning the wheel of the Dhamma, which has rolled through India, rolled throughout Asia, and somehow rolled over the ocean <laughs> and, uh, to Santa Rosa. <laughs> and it's an amazing turning of the wheel. 
that we're sitting here now practicing and embodying these teachings. What is it that he taught when he set the wheel of the Dharma, the wheel of the law in motion? He taught the Four Noble Truths, which is just the essence of Buddha Dharma. The first Noble Truth is the truth of suffering. It's opening to the suffering that exists. And we can see it in so many ways. It's so obvious, the suffering in the world. You know, we see it in war, and we see it in violence, and we see it in cruelty, and we see it in poverty, and we see it in justice. And even though our own lives may be quite comfortable, it doesn't take much openness or much sensitivity to realize the immensity of suffering that is existing in the world today. We can see an opening open to the suffering in the body. Now on retreat, we begin to feel it very closely and clearly, just all the different kinds of pain that come. And really, the pain that we feel in, in meditation practice is minimal compared to the potential for pain you know, in this body as it gets sick, as it gets diseased, as it dies. And this is very real. It's not a theory. You know, if we can really open ourselves to come close, to come in contact with this, we see the truth of this. And we can see the suffering in the mind. You know, all the different sides of it. The anxiety and the fear and the loneliness and the anger and the lust and the boredom and the restlessness and the unworthiness and all the forms mind-suffering takes. In our great world of having, we often distract ourselves from this truth of suffering. We fill our lives with having, and we don't see what is so obvious as soon as we settle back into being and open ourselves simply to seeing what is there. This first noble truth of the Buddha becomes so obvious on so many levels. As our practice deepens, we get a much deeper sense of what it is that we are calling life. We are so identified with this process of life, and yet how often do we take the time to free ourselves from our views about it and our sentiments about it and our attachments with regard to it, and actually look carefully, what is it? What is this process which we are? As our practice deepens, we begin to see for ourselves the momentary nature of phenomena. We see very directly, not theoretically, we see for ourselves 
how phenomena of mind and body are arising and vanishing moment after moment, countless times a moment. I'd like to read you something. This was an article from a report on, uh, from an astronomer. Everything we have seen indicates that the solar system is far more dynamic than we originally anticipated. Before, astronomers conceded that outer planets might have been active in their first billion years of existence, but figured the last three billion were basically a holding pattern holding pattern. Now we suspect that very few things are unchanged over three billion years. <laughs> it's a start. <laughs> Maybe things change over three billion years. <laughs> and over a billion and a thousand and a hundred. And maybe things change a billion times a moment. You know? And this is what we can actually see as the power, the refinement of our perception gets stronger. We see that, we experience it. We see the unreliability of phenomena precisely because it is disappearing, it is dissolving in every moment. It opens us to a new level of understanding reality, of understanding what life is, of understanding who we are. As we open to all of these levels of suffering, of incompleteness, of unreliability, and there are so many levels that we can look at this, we begin to appreciate what the Buddha meant in this first noble truth. It means something very large, very comprehensive. The second noble truth of the Buddhist teaching is the cause of suffering. Where does this suffering come from? What are its conditions? What are its causes? And he saw that the causes of suffering are these kilesas in the mind, the afflictions of the mind, the afflictive emotions, rooted in greed, rooted in hatred, rooted in delusion. You know, all of those associated states. It's not that these states make us bad. They don't make us bad people. They make us suffer. They are the cause of suffering. And so when we see that, we can begin to get some indication, some glimpse of how to come out of that suffering. The kilesa or affliction that is considered the most dangerous, the one that is at the root of all the others, is this kilesa or affliction of attachment to the idea of self, the attachment to the idea of I. Because this misconception, this illusion, hallucination of perception, 
becomes the cause then of so many actions in our lives that are not based on what is true. As long as we hold firmly to the belief in a permanent self, a permanent I, what happens? We need to protect it. We need to defend it. And we need to gratify it. And we need to aggrandize it. And our whole relationship to the world becomes one of separation, becomes one of I and other. And it's all based on an illusion, on not seeing clearly. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering. That is, these forces of greed, hatred, delusion, of this misperception with which we identify with a sense of self, a sense of I. The third noble truth is realizing the end of suffering, coming to the end of suffering. And we can taste this in our practice and in our lives on many different levels. When we free the mind from those kilesis or defilements or afflictions in the moment, we are actually freeing ourselves from suffering. Pay attention the next time the mind is caught in anger or caught in fear or caught in delusion, caught in some state that is afflictive, observe very carefully the suffering of that state and watch what happens in the moment when that state comes to an end. If we can actually be mindful of it and pay attention, we are experiencing the first noble truth in its suffering and we are experiencing the third noble truth in the end of suffering, when we come out of that state. See the difference between when we're lost in a thought, carried away by a thought, lost in the content, in the drama, when there's a strong sense of I, and in that moment of awakening to the fact that it's only a thought. Now, what is the difference in experience at that time? There's a moment of awakening. It's, ah, only a thought. I've created this whole drama. And how many times do we do this? When we're sitting, when we're walking, we create a mind world. We get lost in that mind world. We have all kinds of emotions attendant upon that mind world. And then all of a sudden, ah, it's just a thought. And it's like that feeling of having been in a movie theater and totally absorbed and engrossed in the movie in that moment of coming out of the theater. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's sort of like a reality warp or something. You know, oh, yeah. That wasn't the reality at all. It's a moment of freedom. It's a moment of awakening. Another way we touch this third noble truth, that is the freedom from suffering, is in 
quite a developed stage of meditation. It's called the stage of equanimity. And it's when the mindfulness and concentration have become very strong, very powerful. And the mind achieves a balance, a very deep and profound balance in which there is no reaction at all. Everything is coming and going very smoothly, and the mind is not moving. It's said that this state of mind is the state a fully enlightened being dwells in all the time. We can touch it, we can experience it, we can actually live in it for a while. And it gives us a taste of what a free mind is like. And the third taste of freedom, this realization of the end of suffering, is when the mind opens to the unconditioned, that reality which is beyond the mind-body altogether, beyond the realm of conditioned phenomena, beyond the realm of impermanence. Out of that place of equanimity, it's, it's really the mature place of practice where all the factors of enlightenment are ripening. Out of that place, the mind opens to this reality, which is the highest peace. And it has many names. You know, Nibbana, or the unborn, or the unformed, or the unconditioned. And different traditions probably have different names for it. Just to give you a sense of the taste of that, there's an image which came to mind. Now, have you been in a room, you know, in somebody's kitchen, where you're hearing the hum of the refrigerator? You know, and usually we don't even hear it till it goes off. And then there's that moment of relief, right? just that moment of silence, the moment of stillness, when we become aware of the irritation or the annoyance or the difficulty, whatever, whatever word you want to use, of actually hearing it continually and incessantly in the background. This hum, 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 and then whoosh, quiet. If you think of this mind-body process as the hum and Nibbana as the peace of the hum stopping, it's the putting down of the burden. It's the coming to rest. It's the deepest silence. This is where the practice is leading. It's leading us to this unconditioned reality, which is the fulfillment of understanding the Buddha's third noble truth. There's the suffering, and the causes of suffering, and the end of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the path which leads to this experience the path which leads to freedom. 
and in the most general overlay, overview of the path, it is the training in sila, the training in virtue, the training in non-harmful action, training in concentration and mindfulness, samadhi, and the training in wisdom. All the insights which we develop in the course of our practice, in the course of paying attention, insight into impermanence, so that it's not simply theoretical. We are actually living it and seeing it. Insight into the unsatisfactoriness, the unreliability of phenomena, and insight into selflessness. This is the path which leads us to freedom. Each one of us has heard this call to awakening. Each one of us has heard this call to destiny. It's what has motivated us to begin this spiritual journey, this spiritual undertaking. And it's powerful because the journey is difficult. It's extremely difficult. And yet something is in us which keeps pushing, which keeps pulling us to do this. Each one of us has undertaken at least some level of renunciation, of being willing to give up the appearance of things, the conventions of things, a certain willingness or openness of mind to go deeper, to see what's beneath the appearances. And each one of us is involved in the great struggle. Just that sense of willingness to be with the range of elements of mind and body, both the seductive ones and the terrifying ones, and the difficult ones. That's what we are doing in our practice. It is this very heroic effort of willingness to stay present for it all. And we are all walking on this path to the great awakening, to the great liberation. What is most important to understand about this journey is that we do not do it for ourselves alone. We are not just practicing for ourselves. After the first 60 disciples of the Buddha were enlightened, he sent them forth. And this was his, this was his teaching. He said, Go forth, O bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good benefit and happiness of people and devas. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dhamma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, and excellent in the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others, you who have fulfilled your task. Keeping this in mind, 
becomes a great source of inspiration for our own efforts, that it is not just for ourselves, that as we purify our minds, we are actually able to be of service to others. The last words of the Buddha before he died, which I think carry a very special import. And just imagine ourselves being there, being in the presence of the Buddha as he is about to die, and his last words to people, summing up the 45 years of his teaching. With the light of perfect wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Work out your liberation with diligence. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Work out your liberation with diligence. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.